Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about the legacy of racism in America as a way of understanding the anti-racist rebellion against police brutality happening at this very moment. This is not an episode about current events. That episode is in the works. This is for anyone who needs either a refresher on how we got here or for those who need something that they can send to family, friends, acquaintances, enemies, whoever, so that they can say, here, listen to this one thing, it'll answer 95% of your questions or objections to the movement for black lives and the rebellion against uh, police taking place. If you listen to this and you still have questions, then we can talk. That's what this episode is for. Uh, we all know people who need to learn more, so please share widely. Uh, the types of questions we're going to be answering today why are you all so hung up on this long past history anyway? Uh, what good would 40 acres and a mule 150 years ago do for anyone today? How could it possibly be racism's fault that black people all live together in poor neighborhoods? Confederate monuments are about history. It does no good to try to forget history. What do you mean we've all been taught the wrong history about Martin Luther King Jr.? How could our criminal justice system be racist? It only puts people in jail if they commit crimes. I learned that drugs are bad and people who take drugs are also bad, and that's why the war on drugs is good, right? The classic, yeah, but what about black-on-black -black crime? Uh, the trending question right now, why can't they protest better? The American standard, we may not be perfect, but we're always progressing and that's what matters, right? And finally, but why do they have to riot? All of that on today's episode, which is compiled and remixed from the best of the last five years of coverage we've done on the history and legacy of systemic racism. Clips today come from Last Week Tonight, Pod Save the People, Backstory, Decode DC, Off Kilter, On the Media, Cape Up, Making Contact, The Young Turks, Newsbeat, Lead Stories, Cat Black, About Race, Democracy Now!, the Daily Show, and The Ezra Klein Show. The key fact about the Civil War, the Confederacy was fighting for the preservation of slavery. And that's not my opinion, that is just a fact. There are many ways that we know this. Uh, slavery is mentioned in multiple states' declarations of secession, with Mississippi saying our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery. The Confederate Constitution contains a clause enshrining slavery forever. And then there's the speech Alexander Stevens, the Confederate Vice President, gave in 1861, in which he articulated the basic principles for the Confederate nation. Its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man that slavery, subordination to the superior race, is his natural and normal condition. Wow. Subordination to the superior race. That is explicit. If the Confederacy was not about slavery, somebody should really go back in time and tell the fucking Confederacy that. <laughs> and yet, remarkably, many people think the Civil War was over something else. When people were asked, what do they think the main cause of the Civil War is, 48% said mainly about states' rights. Only 38% said mainly about slavery. 9% said both. And that is amazing. Only 38% thought the Civil War was mainly about slavery. In other words, look to your left, now look to your right. Statistically, all three of you live in a country where only 38% of people think the Civil War was mainly about slavery. And on that states' rights argument, for the record, 
the southern states were ardently pro-states' rights, but with some glaring exceptions. Notably, when northern states passed laws to help protect runaway slaves, the South wanted the federal government to override those states' laws. So they loved states' rights as long as they, as they were the right states' rights. The wrong states' rights would be states' wrongs, wrongs which would need to be righted by the right states' rights. Look, to put it really simply, they just wanted to own black people and they didn't much care how. That's a fact! For my news, I'm talking about an important piece that was written last week in the New York Times by Dr. Tara Hunter, who's a professor of history and African-American studies at Princeton University. So here in the D.C. area last week, we were celebrating the District of Columbia Emancipation Act, which celebrates how on April 16th, 1862, Abraham Lincoln signed a bill that emancipated enslaved people in the District of Columbia. Woohoo. That's great. It's lit. It's amazing. The act is notable uh, because it was the first time that the federal government authorized the abolition of slavery, which hastened its demise in Virginia and Maryland as runaways and, and folks of color often fled to Washington in order to be free. The thing about this is that what some people tend to forget about the measure is that uh, to ease slave owners' pain, the act paid those loyal to the union who were willing to emancipate their slaves $300 for every enslaved person they freed. Another way of putting this is that slave owners in D.C. receive reparations, while the emancipated enslaved people, the people who, to be clear, built the homes, plowed the land, planted the crops, and who built the wealth, receive nothing. And this is largely because Abraham Lincoln, in the midst of the Civil War, was anxious about preserving the alliance with slaveholders who were still loyal to the Union. And so what became clear to Lincoln is that for him, the only way to persuade slave owners to release their slaves uh, and keep them loyal to the Union was to compensate them. This put a lot of abolitionists, though, in a bit of a bind because while they welcomed the end to slavery, many were really offended by this idea that slave slaveholders rather than the emancipated enslaved people should be the ones who are paid for this. And that such a transaction legitimized the right of people to own property in the first place. Uh, there's a long history of slave owners being compensated for manumitting their slaves. And so I think all of this is important historical context as we move forward with this national conversation on reparations and who deserves them and who doesn't. And I think to have an honest conversation about it, we have to be clear really about like who has already received them. And as Dr. Hunter points out in a way that I think many people often overlook, when enslaved people were emancipated in D.C., it was the slave owners who got reparations and not the enslaved people. One of the things that I learned in the past couple of weeks was from a study called The Intergenerational Effects of a Large Wealth Shock, White Southerners After the Civil War. Uh, and what they find is that even for those slaveholders who did not get compensated by the government in this way. We saw a massive level of wealth building after the Civil War for folks who owned slaves before the Civil War. And what the researchers find in this study is that folks who own slaves, white slaveholders, uh, in the 15 years after the Civil War, they were able to leverage their social networks. They were able to leverage really the, the proceeds of whiteness, right? Being able to continue to exist in a society that was still founded in racial inequity and white supremacy. 
and leverage those social connections and familial bonds, right? So through marriage and through social networks to be able to completely rebuild their wealth in a period of 15 years after the Civil War. And then, of course, once they had reconstituted their wealth after the Civil War, those white slaveholders, former slaveholders at that point, then used that social capital and those economic resources, that power to reimpose Jim Crow and the end of Reconstruction uh, and a racist regime in the South, right? And so, you know, this is a, a really important time period to understand and to research because, you know, it is one in which the government not only allowed for the reimposition of a white supremacist state in the South, but also directly enabled it. And we have to recognize that a lot of the wealth, frankly, that people have today can be traced back to, to this time period when folks who already had money were essentially allowed to, to rebuild and keep that money and extend their influence for generations. I think the entire trajectory of how racial economic inequality has evolved in the United States would have been completely altered had the initial land allocation been made to the formerly enslaved. This is William Darity. He's an expert on the racial wealth gap, and he's studied wealth inequality for decades. Here, he's talking about a policy from 1865 known as 40 acres and a mule. My suspicion is that we would not have this conversation or need the conversation about reparations at all had the initial order been implemented. Before the end of the Civil War, General William Sherman issued an order that promised ex-slaves a large swath of coastal land that ran from northern Florida all the way up into South Carolina. Each family would be given up to 40 acres to farm and build a new prosperous life. This designation was made and actually executed up to the point where upwards of, I believe, 4,000 slave families were settled on the lands, but the lands were subsequently taken from them and returned to the slaveholders or the former slaveholders by Andrew Johnson. This shaped the foundations for racial wealth inequality in the United States, a foundation that is experience today in a quite dramatic fashion. Perhaps it's the most extreme expression of economic inequality between blacks and whites in the United States of any other measure that's available to us. Can you share with us your knowledge about what happened to some of these uh, formerly enslaved people that had their land stripped from them? It could have had implications not only for opportunities to engage in farming, but also other kinds of possibilities at a future point, including real estate development, including the prospect of establishing rental properties for retail activity. Some of the, the land that was initially allocated to the formerly enslaved on the islands along the coast of South Carolina and Georgia has become some of the most treasured recreational properties in the United States today. Right. Hilton Head Island and the like. 
yeah, we would have had a very different kind of potential for black economic development had had the 40 acres actually been delivered. And what we had instead was wealth deprivation. Yet, in spite of all the barriers, and they range from lynching to just terror, African-Americans were able to acquire land of their own. Could you give us a sense of the the scope, the number of African-Americans, how much land they owned, and what some of the barriers they faced were. In the aftermath of the Reconstruction era, the uh, formerly enslaved community in the South managed to acquire upwards of 15 million acres of land by dint of their own effort and actually their high levels of motivation. That 15 million acres of land was black-owned property at the start of the 20th century. Hmm. In the course of the first 60 to 70 years of the 20th century, that land was seized, appropriated, owners were driven off of the land, and as you mentioned in some instances, the owners were lynched as a mechanism for taking over their property. And so by the time we get into the 1980s, the best estimate is about one million acres of Southern land was still in the hands of black Americans. So this was a dramatic change, and it was a dramatic change that was associated with a essentially a white terror campaign for the purposes of wealth stripping of the property that was held by blacks. Joining me now is Professor Kirk Savage. He's the author of Standing Soldiers, Kneeling Slaves, Race War, and Monument in the 19th Century America, along with many other books, and an expert in Civil War monuments. Kirk, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. So I think what a lot of people don't know about the history here is that most of these monuments were constructed decades after the Civil War, around the turn of the 20th century. Can you give us a sense of the timeline and and why that happened? Right. Well, that's correct that the, the, the big boom in Confederate monument building was sort of roughly between 1890 and 1920. And then there was a, a sort of secondary boom in Confederate commemoration that was in reaction to the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s. So in both these cases, there were political reasons why those monuments were erected when they were. Uh, the first boom took place, of course, during the consolidation of, of Jim Crow and racial segregation right. in the South, kind of final defeat of the ideals of Reconstruction and racial equality in the South. And the second boom took place when that Jim Crow era came under threat from the civil rights movement. Now, I should say that there were also, you know, in, in the North, there was a less marked but similar lag in monument construction simply because the veterans of that war were dying dying off. Mm-hmm. But what really distinguished the Southern commemoration of the lost cause, the white Southern commemoration of the lost cause, was the systematic campaign to build monuments 
rewrite textbooks, put Confederate flags and symbols in public schools. So, it, and and this was happening in the eighteen in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century. A really kind of systematic propaganda campaign to advance the racial cause of the Confederacy. And the Robert E. Lee statue in Charlottesville was constructed in sort of in the tail end of that first wave, somewhere in the nineteen twenties. Right in the early 20s, if I remember correctly. That's interesting, you know, in a way that it took them so long. You know, the Richmond erected its uh, monument. It's huge, you know, kind of magnificent, actually, monument to Robert E. Lee in 1890 uh, and New Orleans a few years before that. But the Richmond monument really sort of kicked off uh, the kind of uh, campaign to make the Confederacy respectable again. Over 160-some years, people have come to believe that in building these monuments, they are commemorating something that is not, as you characterize it, you know, white supremacy, but something larger and greater, such as an entire way of life. How have they come to be so deluded about the nature of the Civil War and of slavery? Well, we, of course, know that the Civil War was fought on behalf of the plantation owners, but it was fought by ordinary white peasants, basically. And so in order to buffer and to explain to people why so much blood was shed in the South during the Civil War, they had to make a myth that what they were fighting for was not, in fact, the enslavement of African people, but it was something had to do with home and self-determination for the South. That myth grew and grew and grew, and it grew in the context that there was no real suppression of the planter class after their rebellion and treason against the United States government. Anywhere else in the world, if you had raged war against the central government, not only would you have been stripped, but many of you would have been executed. The rest of you would have been put in jail and all of your symbols would have been suppressed. But we had the very opposite of that occurring in the South because, as I always say, we won the battle, but we lost the war. And the war grew up among Southern historians to pretend that the planter class in the South, they were fighting to protect the honor of the South rather than they, they were fighting to protect their ownership of chattel slaves. Just a quick note that this next clip contains very explicit descriptions of lynchings, so be ready for that. I think that exposing a family or exposing a community or exposing a county to this kind of violence is going to create real injury. There is no justification for burning someone alive, hanging someone, brutalizing someone in this way. And I do think there is a kind of scarring that takes place. And that's why I I really continue to believe that none of us uh, is free in this country. We're all burdened by our history of Mm -hmm. racial inequality. It's created a kind of smog that we all breathe in, and it has prevented us from being healthy. And when we put out a report on lynching in 2015, 
we got hundreds of letters and emails and calls from African Americans whose family members uh, had been lynched, and they desperately wanted to talk about it. And we sort of expected that. It was much more than we expected. What we didn't expect were the hundreds of calls and letters we got from white Southerners who talked about family members who would brag about having been involved in a lynching, white Southerners who remembered being taken as children to the sites of this brutality and how it's haunted them. And we are all haunted by this history. We've just practiced silence so long. No one has been willing to speak. And as long as we participate, you know, and, and the, for me, what's analogous is, is, is something like child abuse and sex abuse. For decades, children in this country who were sexually abused were encouraged to not talk about it. And they had to bear the trauma and the grief and the burden of that abuse by themselves. And it often left them vulnerable to doing things that were destructive themselves. And what we've learned about abuse and how to help people recover is that we've got to create safe spaces for people to talk about it so that people can hear you did nothing wrong. You're not responsible for that. I look at domestic violence. 50 years ago, uh, we didn't deal with domestic violence very thoughtfully. If a woman complained about being abused by her husband, there was no likelihood in many communities that that man was going to be arrested. We just didn't think it was a big deal. Our attitude was, well, if you chose to get into a relationship with someone who abuses you, shame on you. That's your fault. And police would show up. We wouldn't make these arrests. But then we started listening to the voices of abused women, and our consciousness changed. And today, even our private, even our star athletes, if they are accused of domestic violence, um, they're going to face consequences that they would not have faced 10 years ago. And this consciousness raising, this narrative shifting, is key to an increased shamefulness, awareness about child abuse and sex abuse and domestic violence. And we haven't done that when it comes to the history of racial inequality. In fact, we've done the opposite. We've actually created a false narrative about how wonderful and glorious this stuff was. Right. Talking about the, the, the white people you've heard from who, you know, are haunted mm-hmm. by these things. One of the things um, I just want to put out there is that in addition to people posing for pictures, they sent postcards. Yes. And in, in you talked about earlier about how, you know, the bodies would be cut up. People would save pieces yes. of the, of the victims. Yes. As mementos. Yes. This was a macabre, brutal. Absolutely. Well, black people were thought of as game. I mean, that commodification of African Americans that takes place during slavery. You're not human. You're something else. The slave catalog that we have in our museum on display, the title of it is what shakes me. It says, Negroes, Mules, Carts, Feed. And there is this inability to see the humanity of people because of their color. And posing with these battered bodies was like posing with the the big fish you caught, the game you slaughtered, and carving up part of that as a totem of your accomplishment, your achievement in taking the life of a black person just speaks to this horrific bigotry, this horrific disease that has so infected our nation. And it's why I think 
it's necessary for there to be treatment. A lot of people have assumed that somehow this stuff is just going to evaporate. It'll go away. With enough black achievement, all of these things will dissipate. It right, doesn't like work that way. Like a black president. Like a black president. But it doesn't work that way. It's a disease, and we're not going to get healthy. We're not going to get well until we treat it. And you can't treat it by ignoring it. You can't treat it with silence. You've got to talk about it. You've got to confront it. You've got to acknowledge it. And something transformational has to happen. But that won't happen while we pretend this wasn't a big deal. Fascinating study out uh, about the Nazis. Now, uh, how much of an effect did they have throughout history in Germany? Okay, so not just the effect they had at the time, but how much did that affect us through the generations? So, for that, let's go to the Associated Press again. Researchers from the United States and Switzerland examined surveys conducted in 1996 and 2006 that asked respondents about a range of issues, including their opinion of Jews. The polls known as the German General Social Survey reflected the views of 5,300 people from 264 towns and cities across Germany, allowing the researchers to examine differences according to age, gender, and location. Okay, so this is a significant study, covered obviously a lot of cities and towns and a lot of folks. What did we learn from this study? By focusing on those respondents who expressed consistently negative views of Jews in a number of questions, the researchers found that those born in the 1930s held the most extreme anti-Semitic opinions, even 50 years after the end of Nazi rule. Isn't that amazing and depressing? Turns out that once you indoctrinate kids to think a certain way, they think that way for a long, long time. Now look, I suppose the upside is if you indoctrinate them with positive thoughts, that that will also last a long time. But for now, this is the study we have in front of us. And boy, did they put poison in their minds. And 50 years later, that poison is still there. Amazing. They explain here, the study's author, the extent to which Nazi schooling work depended crucially on whether the overall environment where children grew up was already a bit anti-Semitic. Okay, so it's not just a simple formula of indoctrination. The culture had to already be ripe for it. Okay, and when you have that, and then you do the indoctrination, it lasts for a long, long time. Now, obviously, this isn't, and, and there's one other amazing part. The generation before them, not as anti-Semitic. The generation after them, clearly not as anti-Semitic in Germany. But that generation, in the areas where it was ripe for anti-Semitism, when you added the propaganda in, they had anti-Semitism that lasted for 50 years and beyond. Okay, So now, of course, this doesn't just apply to Germany. I mean, look at what we have here in the United States. There are certain areas in the U.S. where 50 years ago we had a society that was clearly racist. Water fountains for white people, for colored people. You try to cross the wrong bridge, you're going to get a baton upside the head. You're going to try to sit at the wrong diner, you're going to get hot coffee thrown in your face. You're going to have uh, burning crosses in your yard. Now, that culture wasn't from ancient history. Those, some of those folks are still alive today. A lot of those folks are still alive today. Now, if that indoctrination in that culture persisted in Germany for 50 years, do you think it might have also per persisted here?
The honesty of both the museum and the memorial hearkened me back to the first time I visited the Holocaust Museum in yeah. Washington and yeah. just how powerful it was to be told history unvarnished and truthfully. Yeah. None of the gauzy, euphemistic language. Here's what happened. Here's who did it. And here's how we can, what, here's what we can do to not have it happen again. When I went to Berlin and I went to the memorial there just beyond the Brandenburg Gate and the the name of the memorial is like the na- the the National Museum for the Murder Jews Murder yeah, Jews yeah, of yeah. Europe. I mean they hit you in <laughs> right. the face you cannot get around yeah. it. Yeah. And that's to me that was so powerful to be told history truthfully yes. and honestly yes. um and even brutally yes. in order to get you to understand. Yes. Yeah. And so in seeing both the museum and the memorial I think that's what sort of hit me is that there's no sugarcoating here. No. If you come here, you are you are whether you want to or not are going to be confronted and you will learn. Yes, that's right. And I'm inspired by what they've done in Germany. I mean, you can't go 100 meters in Berlin without seeing markers or stones or monuments right. placed next to the homes of Jewish families. And what inspires me about that is that in Germany, people don't want to be thought of as Nazis and fascists for the rest of their lives, for generation after generation. They're trying to change the narrative. And because they talk about the Holocaust, because it's a country where you don't see Adolf Hitler statutes, where there is no effort to glorify and romanticize that effort, that his era, I'm comfortable going there. In Rwanda, it's the same thing. The Genocide Museum in in Rwanda, they have human skulls in there. And for a lot of people, they say, that's just crazy. But people so desperately want to express their grief, they feel the need to do that. And I think that it's a pathway to recovery. When we say we did something wrong, when when we own up to our history of violence and abuse and tyranny and enslavement, when we do that, then the opportunity for redemption is born. That's how you get to recovery. That's how you get to restoration. That's how you get to reconciliation. It begins with telling the truth. In most faith traditions, you can't just show up and say, I've never done anything wrong, but I want salvation. <laughs> you have to acknowledge this need because it doesn't take, it doesn't resonate, it doesn't stick, it doesn't land. And in this country, we have developed a really bad habit of never saying, I'm sorry. And it leaves us incomplete as human beings, incomplete as a nation. Because apology isn't just something you're forced to do when you've made a mistake. Apology is how you grow strong, how you become more human. You show me two people who've been in love for 50 years, I'll show you two people who've learned how to apologize to one another when they hurt each other, when they've done something that didn't land the right way. That's how you build something stronger. And we haven't built a very strong relationship, a very healthy relationship to our history of racial inequality. And because of that, we continue to perpetuate racial inequality. And so I hope these museums become models for what other communities do to, to, to look more honestly at our past. In Baltimore, Freddie Gray. In Ferguson, Michael Brown. In Staten Island, Eric Garner. And in many other places, poor black men and boys have died in confrontations with police. My guest on Decode DC today says 
The social unrest we've seen in some of these places shouldn't be shocking to anyone. It is absolutely predictable. What we're seeing right now when we look at a Ferguson or we look at, a, at at Baltimore in this moment, we have to remind ourselves that this is a screenshot at the end of a very long-running movie that is still not over. This is Isabel Wilkerson. She's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. She spent 15 years researching and writing a book that's now among the most important ethnographies of the 20th century American experience. It's the story of the mass migration of African Americans out of the South. Wilkerson's book is called The Warmth of Other Sons, the epic story of America's great migration. Its name, The Warmth of Other Sons, comes from this poem she reads from Richard Wright's coming-of-age novel, Black Boy. I was leaving the South to fling myself into the unknown. I was taking a part of the South to transplant in alien soil, to see if it could grow differently, if it could drink of new and cool rains, bend in strange winds, respond to the warmth of other suns, and perhaps to bloom. The story of the Great Migration is this. Between World War I and through the Civil Rights era, some six million African Americans headed north. Families sought lives and opportunities they thought would be more readily available outside the grip of the Jim Crow South's rigid caste system. But it wasn't that simple, says Wilkerson. We still live with the after effects of the assumptions and stereotypes and the, and the structural inequalities that grew out of that era. Wilkerson's book describes the Great Migration through the eyes and experiences of three people. They each fled the South for different reasons, one to seek professional work or just any opportunity. One stole away under the threat of being lynched. Their stories are beautiful and horrible and jaw-dropping. But what really smacks you in the face as a reader is what they found in the North, as they and millions of black people like them began to populate cities from Los Angeles to Chicago to New York, they ran up against obstacles that may have been less overt than in the South, but ultimately they were equally as devastating. They found in some ways some of the same resistance that uh, a permutation, you might say, a mutation of the resistance and hostility that they'd experienced in the South, which is, in a way, it was as if they were moving from one place to another only to find that which they had sought to flee, which is just astounding when you think about it. Black people could only get certain kinds of jobs. They were paid much less. Their rents were higher. They were denied mortgages. And all of this was done systematically, legally, through government institutions. In some ways, the people were quarantined into these small, these t tightly packed, overcrowded, worst neighborhoods in every city that, that, that they arrived in. We all to this day 
can identify where those places that they were consigned to live were because every city in our country still has has these pockets that are there where the poorest people live to this day. This is all uh, the after fact, the aftermath of the response to their arrival. The people who'd left seeking a better life were forced to scrabble at the bottom, eking out a living, treated by communities and city leaders as a nuisance at best. The rare African-American family that did scratch their way one rung up the ladder faced horrible consequences, says Wilkerson. When they managed to do that and cross all those barriers, they were met with tremendous violence. There were bombings, fire bombings of their homes. There were restrictive covenants that meant that white homeowners who, even if they wanted to sell to black homeowners, were prohibited as well. So there were multiple layers of resistance and and obstacles by law that kept and kept African-Americans quarantined and created the ghettos as we know them today. Pick any American city and you can still see exactly where black people were penned up and hemmed in. Because those are still the hardest neighborhoods with the lowest incomes, the least number of homeowners, highest unemployment. The North's reaction to the Great Migration has had a cascading legacy, says Wilkerson, systematically holding back families generation after generation. Those children and grandchildren and now great-grandchildren have suffered cumulatively over the generations as other Americans have been able to move forward. So you can see that as one group begins to move forward, equity and ownership and profit on house after house after house over the generations, African-Americans were held back by law from being able to participate in the fruits of their hard work. And so we now see generations later the the effects, the aftermath of what had been government policy. Now, if you didn't really know this story, you are not alone. Wilkerson says the one thing she hears from readers over and over again, whites, blacks, academics, everyone, is... I had no idea. The people themselves the uh, of this great migration were not talking about it. It's not taught in schools. It's not something that is, you know, connecting the dots between this experience, this major sea change in our country's demographics and history to what's going on now. That connection is not often made. And so people don't think of that upon, you know, first seeing the news. But then when you put it all together, suddenly... Everything begins to make sense, and you can see exactly how and why we got to where we are. King, when he delivers that speech, there is an even number of Americans with a favorable and unfavorable view of him. By 66, twice as many Americans have an unfavorable view than a favorable view. And then he's dead in 68, assassinated. By 1999, when Americans are polled on who are their favorite characters of the 20th century, King comes second only to Mother Teresa. So something happens between when he is assassinated as a somewhat marginal and polarized figure and 1999. 
And this is what I think has happened. First of all, why does he become unpopular? Well, when the speech is delivered, the year after comes the Civil Rights Act. The year after that comes the Voting Rights Act. Legislation begins to kick in. And King understands that the end of segregation is not the same as the beginning of equality. As he says, I have given people, we have won the right to eat in any restaurant of our choice, but we do not have the ability to eat everything that's on the menu because we can't afford it. There are 40 million poor people here. One day we must ask the question, why are there 40 million poor people in America? And when you begin to ask that question, you're raising a question about the economic system, about a broader distribution of wealth. When you ask that question, you begin to question the capitalistic economy. And I'm simply saying that more and more, we've got to begin to ask questions about the whole society. We are called upon to help the discouraged beggars in life's marketplace. But one day we must come to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. It means that questions must be raised. And you see, my friends, when you deal with this, you began to ask the question, who owns the oil? You began to ask the question, who owns the iron ore? You began to ask the question, why is it that people have to pay water bills in a world that's two-thirds water? Now, that kind of talk in America in 1967 will get you killed. And sure enough, a year later, he is killed. So he starts talking about capitalism. Year after that, in 67, he starts at the Riverside Church. He calls America the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today. And takes a stand against the Vietnam War. Now, how is America then going to remember King? Well, it can't remember him if it's going to raise him to iconic status. If it's going to put him on the mall, then it has to sanitize him for public consumption. It has to make him the kind of person who could come second to Mother Teresa. And you can't do that with a man in America who questions capitalism. Because to remember King in that way would not raise him above the fray, it would enter him into it. You can't remember King as a man who criticized capitalism and still hold him up as an American uh, icon. That doesn't work unless what it takes to be an American icon changes. You can't remember him. America can't remember him. The powers that be is the man who called America the greatest purveyor of military violence in the world today because arguably it still is. And it was notable on the 50th anniversary of the speech. It took place literally on a split screen. And on one screen, there was Obama, Clinton, Carter, carrying King's mantle, cloaking themselves in his legacy. And on the other screen, will we bomb Syria? When will we bomb Syria? Why wouldn't we bomb Syria? You can't remember King as that, have him on the mall, and still claim him to be an American icon when he's speaking about America being the greatest purveyor of military violence. But you can remember him as a man who got rid of American apartheid. Not American racism, because that would involve a whole different set of conversations about why black men in D.C. have a lower 
life expectancy rate than men on the Gaza Strip. You can't have that conversation, but you can have the conversation about why or how he got rid of uh, American uh, apartheid. Uh, and so that's the way that they choose to remember him. And so I, I, I end with just one paragraph where I talk about the process by which King and through him the speech can be sanitized. And they say white America, most of it, came to embrace King in the same way that most white South Africans came to accept Nelson Mandela, grudgingly and gratefully, retrospectively, selectively, without grace but with considerable guile. By the time they realized their dislike of him was spent and futile, he'd created a world in which admiring him was in their own self-interest because, in short, they had no choice. When it comes to King and his speech, one of the central arguments in this book is it's not just about what you remember, it's also about what you forget. Like most important figures throughout history, there was so much more to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. than is portrayed in the media and in the classroom. He was a flawed man and a complicated figure who evolved over his lifetime, made many sacrifices and compromises on the way to his many achievements. It's tempting, I suppose, to allow history to view him through a simplistic but noble lens and just leave it at that. After all, Part of the prepackaged and sold legacy is that he was indeed a moral and transcendent figure who fought the good fight on the right side of history. But to truly honor him, I believe we need to be honest about his personal struggles and the times he chose to question the very movement he helped shape. Toward the very end of his life, in fact just the night before he was killed, an increasingly paranoid and fragile king delivered one of the other most notable addresses in his life. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life, longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now, I just want to do God's will, and he's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land, I may not get there with you, but I want you to know the night that we as a people When he delivers that final line, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He turns abruptly and retreats from the stage. In retrospect, 
The moment is made even more powerful knowing these would be his final public words, as though he knew what was to come, maybe even when. He was assassinated the next day. In the end, Dr. King's legacy should be one that speaks to all people. The monolithic portrayal of him as a crusader for social and racial justice diminishes the more revolutionary aspect of his leadership. In many ways, we're only beginning to wrap our minds around the language he was using in the 60s. When he said, this country has socialism for the rich, rugged individualism for the poor, it may as well be Bernie Sanders out there campaigning. You see, the brilliance of Dr. King was his ability to see the entire picture, a spectrum of issues that were interwoven within a capitalist system designed to separate working people from economic power. That economic bill of rights Dr. King first talks about in the fourth book, Why We Can't Wait. In, in that book, he called it a bill of rights for the socially disadvantaged. But by 1968, he was just calling it the Economic Bill of Rights. But you know, really, Dr. King was taking a leaf from the notebook of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Because many people don't know that Roosevelt was saying that the country needed an Economic Bill of Rights before he died. I mean, there's a thread that just runs through our history that most of us are unaware of. I was unaware of it. As much as we would like to paint him as the patron saint of nonviolent action against institutional racism, Dr. King was, in reality, a radical and revolutionary voice cut down for challenging systemic oppression. Yeah, a true legacy. The movement, the memory, epitome of truth, the power, they couldn't let him be. Statues now, before it was an effigy, the end of Jim Crow, enter the SCLC. Nonviolent, but nothing close to timid. Master of the boycott, protest, and sit-ins. A noble man who even won the Peace Prize. Hit the threw him in the cell almost 30 times. Three letters and you know who it is. They try to boil him down in just four words. Too simplistic. They hunted him down, labeled him a communist. Now they applaud after. That he whitewashed it, a champion, a man for all people. Uncle Sam ain't want him to branch out. He reached too far and he pushed too hard. A red alert, so they did what empires do and killed the messenger. We have allowed a human rights nightmare to occur on our watch. In the years since Dr. King's death, a vast new system of racial and social control has emerged from the ashes of slavery and Jim Crow. A system of mass incarceration that no doubt has Dr. King turning in his grave today. The mass incarceration of poor people of color in the United States is tantamount to a new caste-like system, one that shuttles our young people from decrepit underfunded schools to brand new high-tech prisons. It is a system that locks poor people overwhelmingly poor people of color into a permanent second-class status nearly as effectively as earlier systems of racial and social control once did. It is, in my view, the moral equivalent of Jim Crow. 
Now, I am always eager to admit that there was a time when I rejected this kind of talk out of hand. There was a time when I rejected comparisons between mass incarceration and slavery and mass incarceration and Jim Crow, believing that those kinds of claims and comparisons were exaggerations, were distortions, were hyperbole. In fact, there was a time when I thought that people who made those kinds of claims and those kinds of comparisons were actually doing more harm than good to efforts to reform our criminal justice system and achieve greater racial equality in the United States. But what a difference a decade makes. For after years of working as a civil rights lawyer and advocate, representing victims of racial profiling and police brutality, and investigating patterns of drug law enforcement in poor communities of color, and attempting to assist people who have been released from prison, re-enter into a society that had never shown much use for them in the first place, I had a series of experiences that began what I now call my awakening. I began to awaken to a racial reality that is just so obvious to me now that what seems odd in retrospect is that I could have been blind to it for so long. As I write into the in the introduction to my book, The New Jim Crow, what has changed since the collapse of Jim Crow has less to do with the basic structure of our society than the language we use to justify it. In the era of colorblindness, it is no longer socially permissible to use race explicitly as a justification for discrimination, exclusion, and social contempt. So we don't. Rather than rely on race, we use our criminal justice system to label people of color criminals and then engage in all the practices that we supposedly left behind. Today, it is perfectly legal to discriminate against criminals in nearly all the ways in which it was once legal to discriminate against African Americans. Once you're labeled a felon, the old forms of discrimination, employment discrimination, housing discrimination, denial of the right to vote, exclusion from jury service, suddenly legal. As a criminal, you have scarcely more rights and arguably less respect than a black man living in Alabama at the height of Jim Crow. We have not ended racial caste in America. We have merely redesigned it. There are more African-American adults under correctional control today, in prison or jail, on probation or parole, than were enslaved in 1850, a decade before the Civil War began. As of 2004, more black men were disenfranchised than in 1870, the year the 15th Amendment was ratified, explicitly denying the right to vote on the basis of race. The 15th Amendment prohibited all laws that explicitly denied the right to vote on the basis of race. But during the Jim Crow era, poll taxes and literacy tests circumvented the 15th Amendment and operated to deny African-Americans a chance to vote. Well, today, in many states, felon disenfranchisement laws accomplish what poll taxes and literacy tests ultimately could not. Now, this doesn't affect just some small segment of the African-American community. To the contrary, in many large urban areas today, more than half of working-age African-American men now have criminal records and are thus subject to legalized discrimination for the rest of their 
lives. In fact, in some cities like Chicago, Baltimore, Philadelphia, D.C., the list could go on. In some cities, the statistics are far worse. In fact, it was reported in Chicago that if you take into account, if you take into account prisoners, if you actually count prisoners as people, and keep in mind that prisoners are excluded from poverty statistics and unemployment data, thus masking the severity of racial inequality in the United States. But if you actually count prisoners as people in the Chicago area, nearly 80% of working-age African-American men criminal records are thus subject to legalized discrimination for the rest of their lives. These men are part of a growing undercast, not class, caste, a group of people defined largely by race, relegated to a permanent second-class status by law. Now, I find today that when I tell people that I now believe that mass incarceration is like a new Jim Crow, a new caste-like system, people react with this complete disbelief. They just say, how can you say that? How can you say that? Our criminal justice system isn't a system of racial control, it's a system of crime control. And if black folks would just stop running around committing so many crimes, we wouldn't have to worry about being locked up and then stripped of their civil and human rights. Well, therein lies the greatest myth about mass incarceration, namely that it's been driven by crime and crime rates. It's not true. It's just not true. Our prison population quintupled in the space of 30 years. Quintupled. We have gone from a prison population of about 300,000 to an incarcerated population now of over 2 million. We have the highest rate of incarceration in the world, dwarfing the rates of even highly repressive regimes like Russia or China or Iran. But again, this can't be explained simply by crime or crime rates. No. No. During that same period of time that our incarceration rates increased exponentially, crime rates fluctuated. Went up, went down, went back up again, went down again. And today, as bad as crime rates are in many parts of the country, nationally, crime rates are at historical lows. But incarceration rates have consistently soared. Most criminologists and sociologists today will acknowledge that crime rates and incarceration rates in the United States have moved independently of one another. Incarceration rates, especially black incarceration rates, have soared regardless of whether crime is going up or down in any given community or the nation as a whole. So what explains this sudden explosion in incarceration, the birth of a penal system unprecedented in world history, if not crime and crime rates? Well, the answer is the war on drugs and the get tough movement the wave of punitiveness that washed over the United States. Drug convictions alone, just drug convictions, accounted for about two-thirds of the increase in the federal prison system and more than half of the increase in the state prison system between 1985 and 2000, the period of the greatest expansion of our prison system. To get a sense of how large a contribution the war on drugs has made to mass incarceration, Consider this. 
There are more people in prisons and jails today just for drug offenses than were incarcerated for all reasons in 1980. History of our drug laws is a history of racist panics. People believe that it makes black people impervious to bullets. Black men rape white women. Want to seduce white women. Chinese railroad workers. Oh, they were going to use this drug to seduce or rape white women. Mexicans and jazz musicians. They're going to sleep with white women. It's all about fear of people taking white women. It sounds ludicrous, but you read this stuff and you're like, people created these panics based on absolutely no facts. It's never actually about how harmful this drug is. We criminalize it because we want to get at certain groups of people, and Nixon really takes off on that. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. And this is part of the Southern strategy, this Republican idea that we can win over these racist Democrats um, by appealing to their racism. And we can get the South if we just sort of covertly say things like inner city crime and evil hippies, you know, and we can get those voters over to our side by cracking down on crime. And that's a code for cracking down on people of color. And that strategy is admitted. So John Ehrlichman was one of the henchmen for Richard Nixon. In his own words, he says, the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. Then when President Reagan comes into office, you have the second big wave of this drug war. Leading medical researchers are coming to the conclusion that marijuana, pot, grass, whatever you want to call it, is probably the most dangerous drug in the United States. And the Democrats just buy right into this, and they end up sort of fighting with each other about who can be more tough on crime because they're tired of losing elections. And you get this just escalation, and in the Bush years, in the 90s, like, if you tried to say anything like criminal penalties for drugs clearly don't work, you were like a traitor in the drug war. The media just bought right into all this stuff, and, and all of these panics cannot happen without complicity of the media. The fact that the U.S. has one-fifth of the world's population, 20% of the world's prisoners, I think is directly connected to uh, what's been happening the last 40 years. If you look at the United States of America, or even just the world, in its approach to drugs and its approach to imprisonment, it seems really strange. Someone who is addicted to drugs has a health issue. Someone who is selling drugs has an economic issue. There's no other way for them to get money, or they see there's no other way for them to get uh, money for them to continue and support their family. Yet look at the system as it is and see that prison is being used as a coverall solution for mental health, as a coverall solution for those who are poor. 
as a coverall solution for a number of things that are social problems, things that we're not confronting as a society, things we're not giving proper solutions to in this world. We're using prison to just fill up and, and take in those folks who are left behind. The war on drugs is a huge part of mass incarceration. It's one of the reasons why we had this ballooning in the 70s, why we continued growing the prison population in the 80s under Reagan, and why it grew even further under Clinton. Just a quick note on that quote from the Nixon aide John Ehrlichman about the origins of the drug war under Richard Nixon. For whatever reason, that clip, which I think is a fantastic clip, decided to cut that quote short. And so I just want to give you the full context of it because it's even worse than it sounded. So just continuing, by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. Continuing, we could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Unquote. In this video, we're going to talk about prejudice and racism, and how, while they may be similar, they are not the same thing. I know that a lot of people in these conversations like to reference the dictionary, so in this video, we're going to be using dictionary.com. So let's start with prejudice. Prejudice. One, an unfavorable opinion or feeling formed beforehand or without knowledge, thought, or reason. Two, any preconceived opinion or feeling either favorable or unfavorable. Three, unreasonable feelings, opinions, or attitudes, especially of a hostile nature regarding a racial, religious, or national group. Four, such attitudes considered collectively, the war against prejudice is never ending. Five, damage or injury detriment a law that operated to the prejudice of the majority. The definition of prejudice is pretty easy to understand. You have pre, which means before, and you have judice, which obviously connotes judgment. So prejudice is basically when you make a judgment about somebody before you've even gotten to know them. For example, Assuming that all Mexicans are in this country illegally is a prejudice. And it's a prejudice because before actually knowing the person's legal status, you've already decided that they were here illegally. Prejudice is often conflated with racism. And that's always kind of frustrated me because while prejudice may absolutely inform racism, these terms are not mutually exclusive. So let's go back to dictionary.com for the definition of racism. Racism. One. A belief or doctrine that inherent differences among various human races determine cultural or individual achievement, usually involving the idea that one's own race is superior and has the right to rule others. 2. A policy, system of government, etc. based upon or fostering such doctrine of discrimination. 3. Hatred or intolerance to a race or other races. Now, when looking at the word racism, you've got the word race, and then you have the suffix ism. The suffix ism is used to describe a distinctive doctrine, theory, system, or practice. See, racism is more than just a prejudice. It's a system. 
Racism is a system of supremacy. In America, that system of supremacy benefits white people or people who are white passing. When I talk about racism, I'm talking about a system. I'm talking about a system that celebrated the genocide of the Native Americans. I'm talking about a system that said at one point in time that black people were worth less than one whole person. And I'm talking about a system that has allowed people of color to suffer at the hands of white people in the name of supremacy. White people whose crimes went unpunished because it fit the narrative that the society was trying to perpetuate. I'm talking about a system of supremacy that is so intense and so pervasive that people don't even realize that it's there. I have had so many white people tell me that racism ended when slavery ended. And this frustrates me because not only does this say a lot about the state of education in America, but it also makes it clear to me that people don't understand how young this country is. This country is a lot younger than most countries. These things that we learned about in history class, about slavery and about Jim Crow and about segregation, are not that far removed actually. Segregation only ended 50 years ago. The repercussions of slavery have made it very hard for people of color to create a livelihood that would support their future generations to come. Keep in mind that my father was alive during Jim Crow and he's still alive. Now back to the initial topic. Does racism against white people exist? Well, I would say that it does if you live in a country that is more homogeneously non-white. White people will experience racism in those situations because the system of supremacy that's been set up in the country does not favor white people. Places like Japan and many parts of Asia are perfect examples of this. It's also worth noting that whiteness is a construct, and in America there are certain people that we view as white that in Europe are not quite viewed as white. Now, a lot of people misheard what I said in that video, and they thought that I was trying to say that all white people are racist, which isn't what I was saying, but let's pretend that I did. Now, if I were to say that all white people were racist, that would be a prejudice against white people rather than racism against white people. Why? Because there's no system in place that uses that prejudice as a valid reason to oppress white people. People of color can absolutely be prejudiced against white people, but it's worth mentioning that a lot of the times this is a survival mechanism. In America, a lot of people of color grow up with stories from their parents about how white people treated them when they were children. When a person of color is discussing their genuine fear of white people because of things done to them or things done to their family, it's extremely unhelpful to swoop in and say that not all white people are that way. And it's also unhelpful to call them racist because they fear racist attacks. For some people of color in certain areas, fearing white people is how they avoid being attacked. All right, AC, what do we got? All right, so I'm going to start off with Black Lives Matter. That's going to bridge a little bit into Bernie Sanders, but I'm going to start off with this email we got from Kay. And Kay says, Hello, police brutality and abuse of power is a problem. I would even say is a systematic problem. It must be addressed. I work for a large healthcare system in an urban area, and I see victims of crime come through the doors of the emergency department every day. Black men, women, and children injured are ultimately dying from violence. 
That violence is, 99% of the time, not committed by police or even white people. It is other black people. The movement should look at cleaning up our own backyard. Yes, I agree. Black lives matter. I just think they should matter all of the time, not only when a police officer is involved. How can I tell someone to treat me better than I'm treating myself? Keep up the conversation. K. Police brutality doesn't nullify, one doesn't nullify the other. They should both be addressed. So I, I really, I really get irritated when I hear that argument of like, well, look at your own backyard, you know, look at what's happening, look at black on black crime or domestic violence or what have you. But that doesn't nullify the fact that we're being killed and brutalized by a community of people that we pay to protect us and serve us. So I don't know. Yeah, I have to say, like, I can't roll my eyes far enough back in my head Try it, when I say. hear those comments. Yes. Because, one, when it comes to race, we suddenly lose our ability to have nuance. Um, no one would say that we should not be particularly upset by what happened in September 11th when we were bombed by terrorists because white people in America also kill white people all the time and, in fact, kill way more than them were killed in September 11th. We would never say that because it doesn't make sense. Like it, there are differing degrees and being killed by the state is very different than a criminal. One does not expect the police to treat the people the same as one expects a criminal. But also it's just insulting that somehow black folks are not mourning the deaths of their loved ones who are being killed daily in these communities, that black folks are not fighting in these communities daily against that violence as well. I just I, I don't understand why suddenly we, we lose the ability to have nuance and you only lose that ability if you're seeing black folks as some amorphous being who don't really care if their kids are being killed or their loved ones are being killed. They only care if they're being killed by white cops. I, that's absurd. Right. Right. I actually just finished reading the book that nails this issue to the wall. And I can't believe it hasn't been as discussed as much as, say, Don Hossie Coates' book from the past year. It's called Ghetto Side by Jill Leovi, uh, who's an L.A. Times reporter. And what she points out is that both the killing of young black men by police and the killing of young black men by each other are both issues of policing. And that so many young black people and people of color are being, you know, shot and injured and through these this over-policing of stopping everyone for minor infractions, tensions flare up, and you have these shootings. But there is also a, and it sounds perverse to say it, a chronic problem of under-policing under in black communities and that nobody cares if black people kill each other. So there's no thorough, there's no resources, there's no funding, there's no dedication to solving these crimes. So killing black people is a crime of virtual impunity. And because of that, the rates of murder we see in these low-income black communities today are identical to the rates of murder you saw in frontier towns in the Old West, the same as you see in Arab ghettos in Israel that are totally marginalized and cut off from the government there. And so when you have a community that has no trustworthy relationship with police, you have this fratricidal killing because this is the natural state of man to kill each other. And that it is only if you are recognized as a citizen by the state that you give up your power to kill someone and take retribution yourself. Like if someone wronged me, I would sue them. I would call the police when my apartment got broken into. I called the police that filed the report because I'm a white citizen in America and the police protect and serve me. Therefore, I have surrendered my right to seek any retribution for myself. In the black community, you are not being serviced by the police in the same way. So therefore, the culture in that community is, well, we have to solve this ourselves, which in any community black, white, Arab, Chinese, will then escalate into violence because without government, the natural state of man is to 
seek retribution and, and violence kill each other. So what you have is you have all these conservatives who are saying, what about black on black crime? And then unfortunately, I think the response of the Black Lives Matter at this moment has been to say, well, that's just a distraction. We need to talk about police. You know, stop trying to change the subject. It's the same subject. And this this ghetto side book, which like everyone should read, it changed how I think about the whole thing, really, wow. I think, nails it to the wall. Compare the the way now that the 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 mainstream narrative on the civil rights movement is to how Black Lives Matter is treated today. Right. I mean, one of the motivations behind the book was the ways that this narrative of the civil rights movement is marshaled to kind of chastise and correct Black Lives Matter. It's too extreme. It's you know, they might agree with the goals, but not the tactics. You're not going about it the right way. You're not—these aren't the right leaders. So many of these criticisms are criticisms that are waged against the civil rights movement. The civil rights movement was seen as extreme. The civil rights movement was seen as uh, going too far too fast. Just to give you one poll, 1964, here in New York—we're not even talking about the South— this is a year before the Voting Rights Act—a majority of New Yorkers think the civil rights movement has gone too far— by 1964 in New York. Well, well in 1966 was the, the Cicero march where Martin Luther King went right into the heart of the North and right. marched in Cicero, Illinois and said he'd never seen the kind of anger and, and, and violence from white people of Cicero than he had, like he'd seen in the South. Absolutely. The last time Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King see each other is in Gross Point, Michigan, um, suburb of Detroit. He will describe it as the most disruptive indoor audience he ever encounters. He's called a traitor so many times that night that at one point he stops and says, we're going to have a Q&A and you can question me about my traitorness there, because he's just getting heckled the whole time. So I think we, again, right, that we have this idea that it was popular, that most decent people, right, supported it at the time. And regrettably, that was not the case. So let's go to what you're saying about today. Last summer, in the wake of the police killings of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling, Black Lives Matter activists in Atlanta, Georgia, took to the streets, along with protesters around the country. This is Atlanta's then-mayor, Kasim Reed, reacting to the actions that shut down some of Atlanta's major arteries, the streets. My message was that we're respecting their First Amendment rights, but we're the home of Dr. Martin Luther King. And the only thing that I ask is that they not take the freeways. That's everybody. That's your mom, my family, your families. And Dr. King would never take a freeway. I understand that this is just this generation's protest, but during the Civil Rights Movement, they spent more time on making sure that everybody got home safe as they did in the actual protest itself. And so let's just let this be uh, the best version of ourselves. So Dr. King would never have taken a freeway, said Mayor Reed at the time, I mean, Professor Thayer. It, it's just hard to even know where to begin. I mean, probably the most iconic event, right? The Selma to Montgomery march. What is that? Right. The Montgomery bus boycott, it's not taking a fruit, but it's absolutely disruptive. It's meant to be disruptive. It's supposed, it's meant to both disrupt the functioning of the bus company, but also shortly after they begin to boycott the buses, they also that Christmas boycott stores. It's meant to shut, it's meant to say there can be no business as usual. And so part of 
I think the danger of these mishistories, the danger of this fable, is the ways then it's used to shut down sort of conversation and protest, you know, in this constant wishing, you know, Mike Huckabee saying, in Fer you know, to Ferguson protesters, you know, that he wished he would be—they would be more like MLK. And in my head, I'm thinking, you know, be careful what you wish for, uh, because, you know, they are, right? And you don't—and and you don't like it, right? It is disruptive. It is uncomfortable. It is relentless. It doesn't—it's not just injustice exposed as injustice change. That's not how the civil rights movement— actually proceeded. It was injustice exposed and exposed and exposed and exposed, and, and you move the needle slowly, 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 slowly. Donald Trump's beef with the NFL has left a lot of people with a lot of questions. But the question that has come up for me once again is, when is the right time for black people to protest? Everyone has a different answer. Uh, for me, it's uh, right before lunch, because <laughs> that's when I'm hangry, right? <laughs> and after lunch, I get the itis. I'm not effective. Uh, but if you want to know when black people should protest, you've got to go right to the source. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. I think what the president is saying is that the owner should have a rule that players should have to stand in respect for the national anthem. This isn't about Democrats. It's not about Republicans. It's not about race. It's not about free speech. They can do free speech on their own time. Is it not about their First Amendment rights? No, it's not. They, they have the right to have their First Amendment off the field. It's, uh, it's, it's a little weird getting free speech advice from a guy who doesn't speak freely. <laughs> My words are trapped in a prison of teeth. Er. But okay, fine. I hear what Mnuchin is saying. He's not against the players protesting. He just doesn't like it when they do it on the field. You know, when everyone's watching. Yeah, do it somewhere else. Can you imagine Mnuchin giving that advice to Rosa Parks? He would just be like, hey, Rosa, why are you protesting on the bus, huh? People have places to be. Take the bus to your house, sit down on your couch, and protest from home. Boom, racism solved. It's solved. And you know what? And you know what? So uh, the, the Trump administration is okay with protesting, right? They're okay. As long as uh, it's on your own time. Unless you're ESPN commentator Jamel Hill criticizing the president on your private Twitter feed, then that's a fireable offense too, right? Uh, although I do understand where Trump is coming from because Twitter is his workplace, so I, it's, a, it's a different thing. <laughs> but I get it, I get it. You, you do it not in public. Uh, here's another example over the weekend. Stevie Wonder took a knee on his own time in his own show. And even then, even then, a former Republican congressman tweeted, Stevie Wonder takes a knee for the anthem during a concert. Another ungrateful black multimillionaire. Ungrateful to whom? I, I, I'm fascinated by that concept. People always say, that, ungrateful to whom? This idea that black people should be grateful is some sneaky ass racism. Yeah, because when a white billionaire spends a year screaming that America is a disaster, he's in touch with the country. But when a black man kneels quietly, he should be grateful for the successes America has allowed him to have? How is that ungrateful? I don't understand. You know what would be ungrateful? What would be ungrateful is if Stevie Wonder got his sight back and then started complaining about colors. That would be ungrateful. <laughs> if he was like, hey 
man. If he was just like, hey, man, what the f is up with pink? That's a garbage ass color. Be like, all right, Stevie, you're being ungrateful, Stevie. You're being ungrateful. Yeah, it, it, it almost feels like white people earn the money, but black people are given it. They play a game for a living. They make millions of dollars. They're ungrateful millennial millionaires who won't stand for their own anthem. I wish some of these players who get on one knee during the national anthem would get on both knees and thank God they live in the United States of America. Where they're not only free to earn millions of dollars every year, but they're also free from the worry of being shot in the head for taking a knee like they would be if they were in North Korea. Okay, wait, wait. You, you think black Americans are free from the worry of being shot by agents of the state? That's the whole thing that they're protesting in the first place. That's exactly what they're protesting. In fact, in fact, if black Americans went to North Korea, they wouldn't get shot just for being black. Just ask Ambassador Dennis Rodman. It wouldn't happen. So, so again, when is the right time to protest? Well, according to Trump's press secretary, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, it's not the when that's a problem, it's the how that black people are getting wrong. I think if this is, the debate is really for them about police brutality, they should probably protest the officers on the field that are protecting them instead of the American flag. Oh, I see. Oh, don't protest the flag. Protest the police officers that are on the field. So if you do that, then no one will complain. Can you just clarify that, were you saying that, are you encouraging NFL players to protest police? No, no, that's not what I'm saying. I was kind of pointing out the hypocrisy. Oh, wait, you were just being sarcastic. Well, that's a great use of the White House. Nicely done, nicely done. Yeah, but you see, you still haven't told us the right way for black people to protest. Uh, I mean, we know it's wrong to do it in the streets. It's wrong to do it in the tweets. You cannot do it on the field. You cannot do it if you've kneeled. And don't do it if you're rich, you ungrateful son of a bitch. Because there's one thing that's a fact. You cannot protest if you're black. People, I think, tend to believe that America's democratic ideals, its liberal democratic ideals, and the racism that has always been threaded through our law are in tension with each other, that, that one has often been wielded against the other. And, and you write in the book that America's democratic principles do not exist in a space apart from our national commitment to white supremacy. They've always been bound together, sharing bone and tissue. Can you, can you talk through that? Because I think it's quite a different idea of this than the conventional wisdom holds. Yeah, see, I'm deeply skeptical of the legend, right? That if as long as we think we're on the road to a more perfect union, we have the most efficient ideology to let ourselves off the hook. It's almost as if uh, the American idea constitutes an ongoing moral holiday. And we can then do everything, anything we want and leave all the carnage behind because then we could say, well, see, we did that, but we're on our way to be, you know, to a more perfect union in some ways. A certain kind of perfectionism insulate our practices from a certain kind of critique. The problem isn't a distinction between what we do and what we say we believe. 
if we look at the if we look at American history, what we do actually reveals what we believe. And the ideals themselves serve as cover. Served as cover. Now, mind you, they have offered resources for people to, for people in the tradition out of which I come to bring critique to bear on the failure of us to live up to our ideals. I mean, I'm thinking from Douglas to Anna Julia Cooper to Ida B. Wells to, to Reverend Barber to, you know, we can talk about the ways in which we can appeal to the best of America's tradition in order, in order to call attention to our practices. But part of what I'm trying to get at here, and, and I had this conversation with John. Meacham about the soul of America is that you can look the ugliness in the face and not understand how those terrors continue to move us about because we so quickly turned our attention away from them in order to talk about, you know, the more perfect union stuff. When in fact, it's like a child who's had a, a traumatic experience and that traumatic experience continues to move her about as an adult. Right. So I honestly believe and see, this is something that we have to think about. There's there are these moments, Ezra, where it seems as if the country is going to be otherwise. And then we turn our backs. So you think about the Civil War and, re- and radical reconstruction. What do you get in the aftermath of radical reconstruction? You get Jim Crow. You get convict leasing slavery by another name. Right. So you get a, we turn our back on the idea of a radical multiracial democracy and we double down on whiteness and gener- another generation has to deal with the betrayal. You think about the mid 20th century civil rights movement, about black freedom movement. What do you get in response? You get the tax revolt in Northern California. You get calls for law and order. And just 15 years after the passage of the Fair Housing Act in 68, you get Reagan. Right. Which is which is Barry Goldwater thrust finally wins. I mean, this is Reagan, the governor of California. I mean, embodies betrayal. That's triggering, just like Donald Trump is. Right. And then you get, you know, Obama gets elected. And what do you get? You get the, you know, voter ID laws. You get the vitriol of the Tea Party. And then you, we vomit up Donald Trump. So the language of ideals and perfection obscure what we have done and continue to do on the ground. And so I flip it. Our practices reveal what were our commitments, right? And until we kind of confront that honestly, without flinching and without sentimentality, right? We will always, or we will continue to be on this racial hamster wheel. As an independent production that depends on the direct financial support of the audience, Best of the Left is as vulnerable as everyone else in this time of economic uncertainty. When people can't go to work or get laid off, non-essential expenses are the first to go. We perfectly understand that, and that's why we expect to begin to see a drop in our Patreon members in the coming weeks. So if you can support the show directly on Patreon, that would be amazing and fantastic, and we thank you for that. But there is also a way you can support the show without it costing you any money. So if you're doing any shopping from the big box store in the sky, you can use our affiliate link and we'll get a cut of the price from everything you purchase. Our affiliate links for the U.S., U.K., and Canadian stores are in the show notes on our website and on the device you're using to listen right now. If you use our link and you're taken to either the homepage or our Alexa skill page, then you have done it right 
there's nothing additional you need to do, and we will benefit from the shopping you do after that. If you take just a moment to bookmark our link to your country's store on your browser, or even delete the mobile app on your phone and add that link as a button in its place, you can enormously help us get through this health and economic crisis just by doing your regular online shopping. Thanks so much for your support. We don't call it a riot. We call it an uprising because it was a collective response to oppression. One of the things that people need to keep in mind, and one of the reasons we call it a rebellion, is because this was happening all over the country. Many people don't know that between 1960 and 1972, there were more than 1,000 recorded urban civil disturbances or riots in the United States. In naming it that, you bring yourself closer to the reality that brought it into being. In, naming, in calling it a rebellion. See, if it's a riot, people think a riot's like after the basketball game, college, after the soccer game, Europe. You know, they think of some trivial reason. Understandable excitement. Red Sox fans waited 18 years for a trip back to the World Series. fans took the celebration too far, causing mischief in the streets and damaging property. I also condemn, in the harshest words possible, the actions of the punks last night who turned our city's victory into an opportunity for violence and mindless destruction. You know, but when you say rebellion, everybody knows that when you say rebellion, you're talking about something civic something social, something really serious happened when you say rebellion. The shooting of 18-year-old Michael Brown has opened a wound in the community. The violence which erupted in the anger following a candlelight vigil has taken place in Ferguson, a suburban St. Louis. Because most people at some point in their own histories, you know, if you're Irish, you know about the Irish rebellion, <laughs> you know, you American, you know about American Revolution. It's only when you come to black people that the idea of people using force to change or to address their situation becomes taboo. Last night, again, in suburban St. Louis, the scene that photographers captured looked like a police state. Using the same tactical get-up and the same weaponry we've come to expect in urban warfare in Iraq and Afghanistan, police in Ferguson, Missouri, once again had to put down and head off violence in the streets following the shooting days ago of a young, unarmed black man who was supposed to head off to college this week. Now, in the American Revolution, all kind of force was used. People don't talk about human rights when they tarred and feathered Tories up, up there in West Orange here in New Jersey. You know, people don't call the Boston Tea Party a riot. That was a riot. You know, they, I mean, they dressed up like somebody else and went and destroyed the property, threw the tea overboard. But when black people, oh no, black people cannot bear arms. Look, when Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman and Thaddeus Stevens went to Abraham Lincoln and told
told him that he needed to put arms in the hands of the people who had the biggest vested interest in winning this civil war, he winced. <laughs> because what's the immediate thought? Well, we put guns in their hands, they're going to get revenge for what, what we did to them for the past 200 years. I don't think you can ever predict a riot, though. And Martin Luther King said a riot is the language of the unheard. I think we've got to see that a riot is the language of the unheard. Uh, it has a particular singularity and its distinctiveness that you've got a lot of oppressive conditions, you've got levels of social misery, but they can be in place for a while and there's still no riot. And what is it that America has failed to hear? Usually there's a particular moment where the righteous indignation spills over because people can just no longer take it. It's failed to hear that the economic plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last few years. It could be a police killing a fellow citizen. It could be an act of violence, an ugly act of a violation of respect of somebody. It's got to be something that's deeply psychic and it touches the spirit of a people. They reach the point where they actually engage in rebellion. How many summers like this one do you imagine that we can expect? Well, I would say this, we don't have long. The mood of the Negro community now is one of urgency, one of saying that we aren't going to wait, that we've got to have our freedom. We've waited too long. So that uh, I would say that every summer we are going to have this kind of vigorous protest. My hope is that it will be nonviolent. I would hope that we can avoid riots because riots are self-defeating and socially destructive. I would hope that we can avoid riots, but that we will be as militant and as determined next summer and through the winter uh, as we have been this summer. And I think the answer about how long it will take will depend on the federal government, on the city halls of our various cities, and on white America to a large extent. This is where we are at this point, and I think white America will determine how long it will be and which way we go in the future. In the last... 40 or 50 years old, it tends to have to do with the relations of everyday people with the raw violence of the nation state in the form of the police, in the form of police murder, police violence, police brutality. Uh, that's not the only one, but that tends to be the one. Now, of course, when Rodney King got beat up in L.A., that was major in 92. What most Americans saw when they watched Rodney King struck 56 times by white policemen, a jury saw different. We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Lawrence M. Powell, not guilty of the crime of assault by force likely to produce great bodily injury and with a deadly weapon. And that had to do very much with police violence and police abuse. But there's something about the public display of raw violence on people, especially innocent people, where people reach the point they just can't take it any longer. There's got to be some kind of resistance that spills over beyond uh, legal means. There hasn't been a decade since 1967 when there wasn't an urban uprising somewhere in the United States of America. I mean, look at what happened after Rodney King in Los Angeles, in Cincinnati, in Florida, in Liberty City. You know, I mean, every decade there's been some uprising. I think that uh, massive oppression goes hand in hand 
with forms of resistance. And, uh, and riots oftentimes are forms of resistance, and therefore they're unavoidable and inescapable. They're, they're always already there as possibilities, and as long as you have you know, um, economic exploitation, cultural degradation, psychic put-down, injury, and assault on a chronic basis, you're going to have riots and rebellions. It's hard for me to believe that in this day and age, 2014, so many years after Dr. Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement, we're seeing National Guard troops on the street to prevent this kind of violence in this day and age. It's something I didn't think we'd be seeing again. It would be interesting if the corporate media turn the cameras on the daily funerals of the young brothers and sisters who died before 18 years old. If they kept track of the dilapidated housing, if they really went inside the school system, not first and foremost the prison system, they make big money on that, but the school system. Follow a young brother and sister trying to get a job year in, year out, still unemployed. Get a job, underemployed, no trade union to protect them. Follow that and then make the connection between this one moment and this catalyst, police brutality, and then the righteous indignation. And then you say, put yourself in their shoes. How long would you remain silent? How long would you remain complacent? How long would you remain contented? Put yourself in their space. Get out of your own egocentric predicament and conceive of the world through the lens of somebody else. Get your feet in somebody else's shoes for a while and you see what the world is like. We've just heard clips today, starting with last week tonight, establishing once and for all that the Confederacy was fighting to maintain slavery and white supremacy while not really caring about states' rights. Pod Save the People discussed the perverse notion that slave owners were paid reparations while slaves and their descendants still have not been. Backstory told the story of what happened to the old 40 acres and a mule idea. Off-Kilter revealed that what we think of as Civil War memorials were actually put up decades after the war as white supremacist propaganda during the Jim Crow and Civil Rights eras. On the media addressed the question of poor Southerners being tricked into supporting the Civil War by pretending that it was about states' rights and culture. Cape Up, in two parts, spoke with Brian Stevenson, founder of the Equal Justice Initiative and my personal choice for attorneys general, about the cultural damage that is done to a society that lives through something as terrible as our history and how that is compounded by not being able to confront it. The Young Turks linked a study about the legacy of Nazi propaganda and indoctrination of racism in America. Decode DC explained what happened to the black people fleeing the South to escape the racial terrorism of Jim Crow, only to find the circumstances in the North to be not that much better. Making Contact explained how the I Have a Dream speech was used to sanitize the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. to make him palatable for mass consumption. Newsbeat continued to dispel the sanitized myth of MLK being anything other than a radical. 
Lead Stories played a speech given by Michelle Alexander, author of The New Jim Crow, who charted the transformation from Jim Crow to mass incarceration. Newsbeat explained the explicitly racist motivations behind the war on drugs. Cat Black helped us understand the difference between individual prejudice and the system of racism. About Race responded to the tired old question of what about black-on-black crime. Democracy Now! compared the criticisms of the civil rights movement, which we think of today as good and righteous, with the eerily similar criticism of the movement for black lives. The Daily Show called out the fact that any suggestion that black people should protest better are a farce because it is clear that there are no acceptable ways to protest if you are black. The Ezra Klein Show talked with Eddie Claude Jr. about how our national myth of moving ever closer to a more perfect union is the perfect moral cover to commit atrocities but never have to take responsibility for our actions. And finally, we just heard one last segment from Newsbeat bringing us up to today explaining why we riot. To hear content that is available only for our members and to support the production of this show, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line, even though we have not had time to get to those recently. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can send us a voice memo by email or simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Thanks, of course, to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of Left podcast, coming to you as often as we are able, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com. Mm-hmm.